detective job. What kind? Your kind. You take it. Oh, jive me, man. What kind of fucking job are you talking about? Somebody kidnapped my daughter, Marcy. They believe no ransom note or nothing. And nobody saw nothing. I want you to find her. That's the fucking job. I get 50 bucks an hour, plus expenses. And no questions asked about how I spend it. You got it. One more thing. You send another cat after me with a gun, I'll kill the motherfucker and I'll come looking for you. And I'll get you, Bumpy. You believe it. Exploitation is the term used to describe a genre of low-budget action pictures that featured mostly African-American actors and were typically shown in urban grindhouse theaters. The heroes of these films were often privatized, gangsters, pimps, and drug dealers, and were usually violent, sexually insatiable, and defiant of authority. Audiences who've never seen empowered black action heroes on the silver screen loved these movies, and Hollywood did too because they were cheap to make and turned out big profits. Some critics, however, considered these movies offensive, charging that their African-American protagonists were poorly developed stereotypes and these depictions were irresponsible and ultimately destructive. Today on Slums of Film History, we begin the first half of our two-part series on black exploitation. We'll discuss the film's influence and legacy of a subgenre known to feature some pretty bad mother. Shut your mouth! We're just talking about black exploitation. Can you dig it? One of us researches our respective topic, writes an episode, and then schools the other. We discuss everything from black exploitation to ethnically inclusive street gangs to backwater hick rapists. If there's a film subject too taboo, we haven't found it yet. Welcome. Hey, Slate, what's up? Hi, Tom. How you doing? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited, but somewhat nervous about today's two-parter, because this is my own personal two-parter. Yeah, so you're the all... first one to do this, so... Yeah, and this topic I'm very interested in. I, I love these movies, and I hope I can do it justice, but uh, we'll see. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited for a good old two-parter. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll see how it turns out. So, do you have anything to put out? I do, just a couple of quick shout-outs. So, we're into in about the middle-ish of season three now, and we've had a couple of interesting shout-outs. So, yeah. my first episode on LGBT psychopaths you know we really kind of promoted out there and got I think a lot of new listeners so one of the things that we were talking about a color of night I didn't really you know write anything <laughs> about it but yeah apparently we completely flubbed the whole plot of it which makes sense so do you want to know what actually happened in the color of night 
I really don't care, but sure. Okay, so <laughs> this is our listener, Joel, says. Okay. So if Jane March is not actually the killer. It's her brother. In a very convoluted twist, it's revealed that Jane March is not only Richie, who's the boy in the group, and Bruce Willis's lover, but is actually maintaining relationships with everyone in the therapy group as another separate personality. She has three or four different ones. So this is basically... Uh, yeah. She... It's she still is an LGBT psychopath, right? Because she was like had fifteen different personalities. And didn't she kill other people? Or was that yeah. her brother that killed her? Uh, I think what he's saying though, what Joel is saying is that just like Norman Bates wasn't an LGBT psychopath just because he put on women's clothes. Right. He wasn't technically gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender. Okay, gotcha. I'm sure. I mean I guess that makes sense because unless mm. yeah. Okay. All right. So that makes sense. He probably yeah. so he, so she technically was probably not an LGBT psychopath. All right. Fine. That's fine. But she also went undercover as Bruce Willis's penis in the right. She played that. Role yeah. That's as well. what plopped up and was uh, that was Joel. floating on the water. Yeah. All right. I like that story better. Yeah. All right. So thanks, Joel. Hey, thanks. Uh, what else? Um, oh, someone actually contacted us and said that they were surprised we spent so little time on the movie Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Yeah. In LGBT psychopaths. Here's the reason why I skimmed over it my episode right after this is going to be on russ meyer the director and i have a full explanation of how beyond the valley of the dolls got made i'm excited to hear about that yeah it's a really it took me days to figure out all of the story and put it all together in a way that made sense awesome so we'll be talking about that next episode looking forward to that that's it any interesting things on parasites no no feedback on that yet we're just putting that one out so we're on probably like a month delay so yeah so yeah, we'll so see how we'll it see. does. All right. A couple yeah. shout outs. All right. Yeah. Well, good. Well, let's get on with the episode. This is, again, a, a daunting task. We'll see how it goes. But also, let me add that I'm a complete outsider on this topic. Me too. I mean, I have no history with black exploitation than the, just the movies I've seen and the, and the music I've listened to. I discovered this on my own. It wasn't like my parents were like listening to Isaac Hayes or something. Sure. Or watching, you know, freaking Shaft. Believe it or not, I know you find that hard to believe that my right. really Although white parents were you did have a Shaft. little bit of help. I gave you a book on black exploitation and a seven DVD collection of all the Dolomite movies you last did. year. You did mm-hmm. give me all that stuff, and thank you for that. You're welcome. But clearly, I mean, you or I were not the intended audience for these movies when they came out. That being said, I'm still a fan. I discovered this, you know, as I'm looking at exploitation. These movies are incredible. A lot of them are, are awful, but even then, those are incredible as right, well. Sure. So, so I'm a big fan of black exploitation. I hope to do it some justice, but I wasn't somebody who grew up with this genre, so I, I don't have an insider's view. There's no way I can't. I could possibly sure, have an insider's view. New to the game. Yeah, I just want to put that out. So to start, and we discussed this before because we talk about exploitation all the time, but I want to redefine exploitation in general and just sort of redefine it for the listeners. So an exploitation film is any film that tries to succeed financially by exploiting a current trend, niche genre, or lurid subject matter. Mm-hmm. This includes, of course, sex, violence, romance, etc. Most of these are low-budget, limited-release indie films that were also played in, are known as grindhouse films. Even so, some garner critical attention and even have cult followings. A lot of these movies I talk about today will also have that. Yep. So by extension, I'll define black exploitation. And black exploitation is sort of a portmanteau, of course. It's black exploitation film, so black exploitation. And uh, like but last is it week, spelled with an X. I've seen it with both. So okay. black C K S exploitation, mm-hmm. but I always spell it as with the X, so black exploitation, yeah, and that's better. why I see it spelled like that more often. So, black exploitation films were made with black actors and were geared toward black audiences. 
These films usually have the same basic theme of African Americans overcoming hostile, usually white authority figures, aka the man. You'll hear mm-hmm. about the man a lot. Sure. Interesting enough, the term black exploitation was coined in the early 70s by the Los Angeles National Association of Advancement for Colored People, the NAACP head, oh, really? Junius Griffin. He actually coined the term. Hmm. And he coined the term as a put down to criticize the less than positive images he felt these presented of African Americans on the screen. So he wasn't a fan. He was not a fan. And we'll definitely talk about more of this in the second episode of the series. But I just wanted to, to give you a little bit of background on that. Sure. I mean, sure, he liked the movies, you know, where African Americans played doctors, such as like Sydney Portier and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you have a flashy, trashy B-movie like Superfly or something that has a drug dealer as a hero, he wasn't such a big fan sure, of that. Sure. Still, the major theme of black exploitation films, and you'll see that as I talk about it, is like black empowerment. You know, these movies were accused uh, by some of perpetrating common white stereotypes of black folks. And as a result, many called for the end of black exploitation genre. But uh, these films, you know, had reached far beyond the black audience. Like, white audiences started liking these movies, too. And actually, the trend, and you'll see as I go through the episode and, and the next episode, it really started leeching its way into Hollywood as a whole. So, you know, a lot of these this niche topic really started to expand out in the 70s. And, and so it reached beyond just black audiences and even what people feared were the stereotypes of, of black characters. Okay. But before we get on that, this is another episode where we start back at the beginning of film. Mm-hmm. Just to kind of give you some background overall of how movies dealt with black audiences because it's very interesting yeah, as course. I did my research. So in the beginning of the film at the tail end of the 19th century, which is where we're going to start, you had movies being shown in exhibition halls and vaudeville shows. We talked about that before where films were being played in between acts and it was sort of a novelty. Mm-hmm. But they got really popular. So people just started showing just the films and they would show them in places called Nickelodeons. And the term itself is actually a combined word. Mm-hmm. Nickel being that's the price of it. Oh, it was a nickel, huh? Yeah. And then odium being that that's the Greek word for theater. Mm-hmm. I used to go to a theater in Boston that was called the Odeon Theater. So Nickelodeon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's where it came from. You know, these were so popular that by like 1910, nearly one third of the nation were constantly watching movies. But by the 20s, it was like 50% of the country yeah. were continually watching movies every week. So it was hugely popular, huge amount of the, the population. And people just loved movies. All people, all races, ages, everyone enjoyed going to the flicks. One thing though, if you look, and I research a lot of film history for this you know, they talk about all the classes came together to watch these movies, working class and upper class, but they don't really do an accurate job of breaking down the demographic because they seem to leave out a large swath of the audience being like Asians, African-Americans, Mexicans. They don't really talk about those folks going to movies. Mm-hmm. And there's a number of reasons for that. And one is, well, there's a big segregation issue, especially in the South. So when the U.S. Supreme Court in 1896 gave legal sanction to the establishment of segregated public facilities such as streetcars, waiting rooms, hospitals, etc., this didn't translate over to things like movie theaters because movie theaters weren't public utilities. They were privately owned. And so in the South, especially, theater owners didn't allow minorities to attend movies or if they did, they would segregate them, either have them sit in the back rows, or in a lot of places, actually would build balconies just so that they can make African-Americans right, sit sure. in the balconies. So you didn't really get an accurate account or whatever. And at the beginning, when movies were getting popular, theaters were really only owned by whites. Only whites owned movie theaters. So in turn, that started to lead to the rise of the black-owned movie theater. And of course, this offered an alternative to African-Americans because they were advertised that blacks could sit anywhere in the theater mm-hmm. and not just like in the back of the balconies or whatever. And the first black-owned theater that I could find was in Chicago. It was open in 1904. But in five years, according to a black-owned newspaper in the Indianapolis Freeman in 1909, there were approximately 112, quote, colored theaters in the U.S., most of them were outside cities, but they were started getting very, very popular. Uh-huh. 
But one thing that didn't change for a while was the type of movies that were played, because even though there were more and more black-owned theaters, movies were still being made for white audiences. So they had white directors or white producers, white actors, and these were all stories that were relevant for whites. Right. But when they did represent minorities, it was usually whites and blackface. Mm-hmm. Or when they actually showed real minorities, it was usually like bad stereotypes, like drunken Irishman, greedy Jew, you know, the watermelon eating Negro, which is I'm quoting the article, right, but, but that's what they showed. Things that easily you could identify by looking at them on screen. And right. I mean, that's one of the reasons why silent films are so over the top and the acting is over the top because there were no words. So you right. had to, in order to show someone, you had to go basically to the furthest stereotype so that you could visually represent someone so that you could understand. And and a lot of those were comedies. So Right. Yeah. And, and it's, so it was very broad humor. Asian Americans were waiters, you know, or laundrymen. Blacks were bellboys or stable hands or just simple buffoons as played in these movies. But over time, black audiences were getting tired of seeing themselves represented this way on the big screen. I mean, they turned out to be a major contributing factor to Hollywood. They were paying to see movies every week. They wanted to see something that was more positive. They wanted to see themselves represented better. Mm-hmm. And so after a while, movies started coming out that actually catered towards black audiences. And it became sort of its own separate film industry. And these films were known as race films. Race films, yeah. Race films, yeah. The race films were produced between the 1910s and 1940s. And they had, you know, black producers, black filmmakers, also some white producers and white filmmakers, but they were produced specifically for black audiences because I think they started realizing that there's a huge black market, no pun intended, but market for <laughs> black movies. Okay, yeah. And consequently, the separate cinema, as they call it, grew up and played in segregated theaters, uh, both north and south. It's sort of like a parallel Hollywood that mm-hmm. you don't really hear much about. It's oh, interesting. Yeah. Most of these were made away from big Hollywood systems. There was a lot of companies that came up that would make these films. Mm -hmm. Some of them were owned by whites, but some were owned by blacks as well. The first company devoted to the production of race movies was a Chicago-based company called the Ebony Film Company. Mm -hmm. And they began operation in 1915. The first black-owned film company was the Lincoln Motion Picture Company. That was founded by a famous actor from Missouri named Noble Johnson. And that was in 1916. And his studio was based out of L.A. Turn out there's a good number of black directors and black films. I'll talk about some of the films, but this topic actually is so huge. It deserves probably its own episode on a more highbrow. So I'm not going to touch on our our show. So I'm not going to touch on a lot of this stuff. I'm just going to talk about the high points. And probably the biggest name in race movies, I think, in that time period was a guy named Oscar Michaud. It's spelled M-I-C-H-E-A-U-X is mm-hmm. how Michelle, he calls it. Yeah. Michaud. He was an Illinois-born director, and he started the Michaud Book and Film Company in 1919. And he went on to direct at least 40 films that had predominantly black casts, and it was for, of course, black audiences. His career spanned like 30 years, and he became like the most successful early black independent film producer and black uh, film auteur. Huh. Yeah. Of course, he had low budgets. He didn't have a lot of money, and even throughout his whole career, he had to shoot scenes in homes and offices like of his friends mm-hmm. in mostly empty and outdated studios. He would rent equipment by the day. They couldn't really afford retakes, stuff like that. It was a super low-budget filmmaking. Editing was minimal. Even his later films rarely cost like $20,000 to produce. Yet in uh, most of these cases, a Michaud feature was usually superior than any others. He was still the probably the best of the best of the race film directors mm-hmm. and did the most with the limited budget he had. His movies, he committed to what he called racial uplift. A lot of his films were adapted from novels. He cast black actors in non-stereotypical roles, such as like explorers, professors, Broadway producers, secret service agents. Oh, wow. So, yeah, he really did a lot with early film. Some other notable movies, I'm just going to talk about some of the titles of these real quick. There's one called The Homesteader, which was Michaud's first film. There's one called like Within Our Gates, 
Body and Soul. And there's one called Harlem on the Prairie, which was like the first singing cowboy Western race movie. So it was like the first Western that dealt with uh, black cowboys. Oh, wow. And then there's a milestone race film called The Exile from 1931. And that, of course, was an all black cast film. But it was the first talkie race film. Okay. Yeah. It was based on Michaud's autobiographical novel called The Conquest. But anyway, the film, which enjoyed a successful run in New York, was actually censored by the Pennsylvania Board of Censors. They objected to a scene of the main character kissing a white woman. Okay. Although the film generated much controversy, it gave hope to other race filmmakers that black films could compete in the new market of sound movies. Mm -hmm. So in the 30s and 40s, race films did a fairly decent job with black audiences. And some of it carried over to white audiences, but it was still pretty much. much. But as time went on and after World War II, especially in the 50s, more mainstream films started to introduce more black characters. Mm -hmm. Race films sort of fell out of fashion. Right. And actually, the last known race film was a 1954 picture called Carib Gold. I don't know anything about it, no, but it's the last race film. So, which brings us to the 50s and 60s. I felt the need to talk about race films because there's a lot of parallels that you'll see comparing race films with black exploitation, low budgets, specific audience. Oh, but they okay. Would sort Interesting, of, yeah. So, it's sort of cyclic. You know, right. it comes back around in the 70s. But in the 50s and 60s, you saw, as I said, you saw more black actors in Hollywood movies. They were, you know, yeah, behind the, the secondary times. characters. And, but yeah. they were starting to bring them in. So, you started seeing this. But also, the 50s, there were some other major breakthroughs with African Americans and in Hollywood. I want to talk about those. All right. So in 1952, William Walker was the first African-American elected to a member of the Screen Actors Guild Board of Directors. Okay. And where he served until 71. Uh, Interesting fact, at the Guild's meeting the year that Walker joined, he and Ronald Reagan presented a report called More and Better Roles for Negroes in Motion Pictures. So they were trying to, again, trying to do that push of getting more black actors into movies. Although no real changes came from the result of that, Walker tirelessly continued to use his position to lobby Hollywood's executives for years. Finally, in 1963, he partnered with the NAACP to successfully negotiate for SAG's theatrical agreement to include non-discrimination clause. Mm -hmm. So that's a a good step forward as well. A good step in something that still really hasn't been accomplished. True enough. Yeah. And also don't forget, and I know you can't forget, the 60s were very turbulent in America. Uh Uh-huh. Right? I've heard that. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I mean, race relations, civil rights movement exploded in the national consciousness. You'd hear cries of black power, you know, in urban areas and the streets. And it became increasingly difficult for Hollywood studios to continually ignore black society. Black political activists battled in courtrooms and streets to end segregation, to you know, fight for voting rights, equal rights. Black filmmakers and black actors began to slowly infiltrate Hollywood. Along with that, people were tired of old Hollywood. You know, musicals especially tanked in the 60s. Like that was like the big money generator. And musicals just kind of fell apart in the 60s. Yeah, yeah. We talk about that so much. And this is kind of like the times around the 60s and the 70s and Hollywood's kind of refusal to catch up with society and then the backpedaling that they had to do to to get to the much more uh, interesting films of the 70s. Right. And of course, what else was going on in the 60s? The rise of exploitation films. Mm -hmm. And we talked about that at length. We talked about that in Doris Wishman. Doris Wishman. I mean, Psycho is an exploitation film. It was a mainstream exploitation film. But yeah, that's really where it came out of after the production code started to kind of fall apart. Hollywood had been on this very rigid system for many years. And it was kind of like... You know, it's like when you put the kink in the hose and, you know, the hose starts to get real big and then all of a sudden everything starts to explode out of it once right. you, you know, kind of remove remove all of those regulations. So Right. And these indie exploitation films could afford to compete because they were pretty cheap to make. And they talked about topics that Hollywood didn't. And they always are mostly made money, made enough money to justify to keep churning them out. Right. So you had that and that was going on strong and steady. But you also had in the late 60s mainstream cinema where, again, more black actors were getting 
into movies and a lot of movies are coming out that were like social problem films Mm -hmm. you know that dealt with the black plight to some degree there's topics about racism like the defiant ones movie that came out in the 60s yeah and of course guess who's coming to dinner that touched on these points and it's worth pointing out these two movies i just talked about starred sydney portier who was like the black actor of the 60s right like the 60s the movies, only one but the yes. only one right he was the the one black film character right. yeah yeah he carried the torch for black america the one in black the, person. the one black guy was um, sydney portier right and he and sydney portier was the first african-american to win best actor he won for guess who's coming to dinner and what did you say 64 uh, yeah 1964 yeah i think that's right yep also at this time people were getting used to seeing more prominent black actors on tv too you had i spy mm-hmm. which had was the bill cosby bill cosby, bill yeah. cosby and that, that was popular and also you had um, michelle nichols who played lieutenant uhura in star trek mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that was a prominent role for a black actress i think there's even a, a interracial kiss in that in star trek doesn't she kiss uh kirk i think oh i, I thought it was, uh, was it Geor- i thought it was the gay guy george oh uh, yeah, yeah i hope it is yeah that'd be funny. oh my yeah that's the best I can do. That's not bad. But fun fact, she really felt like she didn't have much to do on that show. She was almost going to leave, mm-hmm. but she was convinced to stay by a big fan of the show uh, named Martin Luther King Jr. Really? Yeah. Oh, so there you go. Anyway, back to Sidney Poitier, because he was extremely important in film at that time. You know, he was the first black actor to win, as you said, uh, for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. He won the Academy Award. But he also routinely represented black characters as articulate, you know, bright, clean, nice guys. Mm-hmm. You know, so he did. He had a good image. And he was actually nicknamed the Ebony Saint because of his right. portrayal in these movies. Yeah. I mean, I know you're going to talk about it, but that's the kind of, you know, when we say it's all, all of these firsts, it was like, right, the first time that white people could serve up a black person in a way that was acceptable to white people. Yeah. yeah. But even that started to fade. when he, By the time he got into the movie In the Heat of the Night, did you ever see that? 1967 movie. It was a cop no. movie. There was a scene in there where he slaps the shit out of a white racist. So, uh-huh. you know, there was some... He was getting some more edgier sure. parts and more edgier movies were coming out. Yeah. And that leads me to my next movie, which I don't talk much about, but, but it's not the first black exploitation movie, but it was like a nice transitional movie called Cotton Comes to Harlan. From yeah, 1967. Yeah, i heard of this, yeah. So that was directed by Ossie Davis. Ossie Davis. He was an actor, too. He was an actor, too. And later in life, he was in a lot of Spike Lee movies. Oh, he was yeah. a great actor. But he directed this movie. He was in and Cocoon. Is he in Cocoon? I just saw Cocoon, and I've become obsessed I feel like everybody that was old was yeah, in Cocoon. Yeah, I think he was in Cocoon. So with Jessica Tandy or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Ossie Davis directed this movie, and it was sort of a more cool, hip, closer to black exploitation type of film that you know that dealt with like gangs and stuff like that or whatever. It's I haven't seen the movie. I saw the trailer. It's a, it's a cool look. Movie. I always thought it was a black exploitation movie, so it but it's not really considered that. Yeah, I guess you're transitioning into that. So I am yeah. transitioning that. So meanwhile, overseas, believe it or not, at this time, French and French Italian like co-production movies were making like really racially charged flicks. Mm-hmm. Like they were kind of making French black exploitation flicks and grindhouse movies, sort of like Italian westerns. They were also making like pre black exploitation type of films. Oh, huh, interesting. Yeah, they would make uh, one like My Baby Is Black. <laughs> They were really like racially charged um, uh-huh. from 1961. It's... Murder in Mississippi, 1965, and The Black Klansman from 1966. I remember The Black Klansman. I never saw that. Did yeah. you see that? No, I haven't seen it, but I mean, that's one of the ones that always shows up on the exploitation really? circuit. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. These films started to tackle more, uh, you know, harsher subjects of race, and they're mm-hmm. very provocative. Right. But not in this country. But not in this country. But the stage was being set, as I said, and two major black filmmakers came out that really invented black exploitation as we know it okay the first one uh, gordon parks uh-huh. and second one is melvin van peoples right 
Parks is notable because he wrote a novel called The Learning Tree, and he made the movie of that novel in 1969. In doing that, Parks became Hollywood's first major black director. I say this because this is the first time that an African-American directed a film that was financed by a major studio, which was Warner Brothers. Okay. Parks also wrote the screenplay and composing musical score for that film, so he was all over that movie. Mm-hmm. Van Peebles, his first full-length film was called Watermelon Man, and it was in 1970. Mm-hmm. And Watermelon Man was also made for a large studio, Columbia Pictures. And it tells the story of a casually racist white man who suddenly wakes up black and finds himself alienated from friends, family, and job. Right, right, right. So there was an episode in Good Times where that was like the reverse, where J.J. woke up white. You remember this? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Watermelon Man was popular. Like, Uh it was a comedy, and it made some money. And, of course, it was racially charged. It made enough money so that Van Peebles could have more control over his next film and personally finance what would be considered the first actual black exploitation film, which is Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song from 1971. the best title of all time. Where's Sweetback? Where's Sweetback? I don't know where's Sweetback. Where's Sweetback? Come on, boy. Come on, boy. Where's Sweetback? And you should ba- keep a running tab on all of the best titles of movies. Yeah. And Badass has like five S's. Yeah. Which so, is amazing. And, and three A's. Mm-hmm. Like Badass. Yeah. It's great. So yeah, there's a lot of emphasis on that. And of course, this is widely credited as the movie that started black exploitation. Van Peebles not only directed, scripted, and edited the film, but he wrote the score and directed the marketing campaign. He That was like he did all everything, his. Yeah. yeah. And I'll, I'll go into what the film's about. So Badass Song is about a young African-American orphan who was played by Van Peebles, Melvin Van Peebles. And he's taken in by a person who runs a Los Angeles brothel in the 40s. That's the plot. Mm-hmm. While working as a cowboy, he loses virginity at a young age to one of the prostitutes. And the women nickname him Sweet Sweetback in honor of his sexual prowess and um, large penis. Mm-hmm. As an adult, Sweetback works as a performer in a whorehouse. He entertains customers by performing in a sex show. And then things get weird. He gets arrested. Then he goes on the run. He beats up some cops. He goes on the run down in Mexico, comes across some Hell's Angels for some reason. And he ends up fucking like the the leader of the female Hell's Angels and stuff like that. Supposedly there's real sex in this movie. Mm -hmm. He actually has sex with the people. Yeah, there's actual fucking in this movie. What year is this? 1971. It's understandably low budget. Doesn't have a lot of money. It does have some interesting things in there, of course. Like even in the opening credits, it's like starring the black community. Starring the black community. <laughs> uh-huh, sure, sure. You know, it's not great, but, you know, it was an original take on an anti-hero at the time, especially one that was black and didn't take shit from white cops or bikers or anybody for that matter. Mm-hmm. The film was released on April 23rd, 1971. Um, Melvin Van Peebles stated that at first, only two theaters in the United States would show the picture, one in Detroit, one in Atlanta. The first night in Detroit, it broke all the theater's records. Mm-hmm. And that was only on the strength of the title alone, which I would want to go see that, that movie on the title alone. Since nobody had seen it yet, you know. But by the next day, people would take their lunch and sit through it three times. The film grossed $15 million at the box office. The equivalent of $90 million That's in huge, 2016. Yeah. And the end of the film, too, and I need to talk about that, was shocking to black viewers, which is what kept them coming back. Because all these films that up to this point, if it had like a black or some sort of rebel hero... The law always got them. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Like, even, right, I sure. talk about a couple other ones through Vigilante Vets, you know, where somebody speaks out against the man, and the man always wins. But in Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, he fights cops, fights bikers. He goes on the run. He gets away with it. Like, right. the character actually wins, beats the law, which you never saw in movies up to then. Right. Well, that's funny that you should mention it, because that was one of the main things about the uh, production code, was that if you had an outlaw in any way, you could show an outlaw, you could show murder, you could, you know, show all of this 
you know, anti-cop, anti-establishment stuff. But the character that broke the rules had to get retribution. I mean, they had to be punished at the ending. And so after the production code, it's like you really started seeing these movies. They'd never done it before because the production code said they couldn't. So all of a sudden you could have a character get away with murder at the end and it was okay. Yeah. And that's pretty much what happened here. Fun fact, uh, Sweetback received an X rating from the Motion Picture Association of America. That inspired the advertising tagline, rated X by an all-white jury. I remember that, yeah. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. That's That's amazing. A theater in Boston had cut nine minutes out of the film, and Van Peebles stated, should the rest of the community submit to your censorship, that is its business, but white standards shall no longer be imposed on the black community. I love that. Yeah. Also, another fun fact, interestingly enough, so Van Peebles, like I said, he privately funded this movie, and he also received a $50,000 loan from Bill Cosby to finish the film. Oh, really? Yeah, so no matter what your feelings are towards Bill Cosby, and we talked about that, he did fund the first black exploitation film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I know. So Sweetback was groundbreaking in its own right. It was a rebellious picture showing a black protagonist up against a white system and winning. A theme that would follow throughout the most black exploitation films. It also had touted another aspect that would follow these films in that it had a funky-ass soundtrack. Yeah, sure. In Sweetback's case, Peoples wrote the score for the film, and it was performed by then-unknown Earth, Wind, and Fire. Mm-hmm. And it would set the template for the funk-infused music that would come to define black exploitation in a large part of the 70s as well. Yeah. So if Sweetback has been credited as kicking off the genre, it was this next movie released just a few months later that would be the blueprint for films to follow it would make black exploitation a force to be reckoned with and that film would be shaft, shaft. also from 1971 yeah. shafts his name shafts his game the mob wanted Harlem back they got shaft up to here shaft hotter than bond cooler than bullet rated r if you want to see Shaft, ask your mama. So Shaft is about a cool black private eye named John Shaft. He's hired by a crime lord to find and rescue his kidnapped daughter. Shaft had been called the Black James Bond because he was cool and he could kick ass. Shaft is played by Richard Roundtree, and his performance was instantly iconic. Yeah. The film cost $500,000 to make, and it grossed $13 million. Jesus. Yeah. But what's interesting is making Shaft was a huge gamble for MGM. MGM produced this movie. Oh, really? Yes. I didn't know it was a big budget. It was a big uh, budget, yeah. and it had it was being worked on while Sweet Sweetback was being worked on. So it was kind of coming around at the same time. Uh-huh. And it's an interesting point. I bring this up later, but I'll bring it up now. Is that you had both sides of black exploitation in one year that kicked off the whole genre because you had the independently funded, very black militant movie with Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. You had Shaft on the other side, which was a Hollywood-produced film with a more traditional protagonist. You right. know, he was a private eye, and yeah, right, he was tough, sure. but he wasn't like a gangster or a criminal right. coming from that side. But at the time, NGM, you know, they were once a prestigious studio. They had done Gone with the Wind, Wizard of Oz, huge studio. They were facing financial ruin. They were on dire time, so they took a risk with this. It's just really funny to me because usually there's many instances of, of studios taking risks. I'm going to talk about it in my next episode with uh, Russ Meyer. Mm-hmm. But usually they wait to see if something has worked before they are willing to take that risk. So it's funny to me that they were already making Shaft before they knew the outcome of uh, Sweet Badass, right? Well, I think they were going off of Cotton Comes to Harlem and some of those other 60s movies more so So you're saying they were saying, let's take a race risk as opposed to let's take a black exploitation. Thanks for bringing that up because Shaft was originally going to be a white hero. Oh, really? Yeah, Shaft was going to be this, so they a made a casting movie. decision they made a casting decision wow. and it paid off big time for yeah them. 
Yeah. And also they hired Gordon Parks, who I mentioned did The Learning Tree, who had been the first black mainstream Hollywood director with his first film. And of course, Shaft provided audience with a sexy, practically omnipotent hero in the style of like the black James Bond and his precarious balancing act between like white world and ghetto. Viewers just ate this up. They fucking love this movie. Right. Sure. Rare for black exploitation films, though, with Shaft is that it was a crossover hit. The white community loved this movie, too. And I think part of it, they, I have it quoted, that they were drawn in by unthreatening racial politics. It wasn't really like a black power type of movie. This is a black protagonist and a mostly conventional story, but he was a strong black character, but that was fine. White audiences could deal with that. You didn't have to take a side. Right, and yeah. that's true. Yeah. And white people hate taking a side. Yeah. But then another big thing with Shaft was that it had a fucking badass soundtrack yeah. done by none other than Isaac Hayes. Isaac Hayes. Who is the man? It's fucking awesome. It's great soundtrack. We'll talk a lot more about Isaac Hayes going forward. Fun fact, Hayes actually auditioned for the role in Shaft, but he was asked to compose the music instead. Hmm. Anyway, the Shaft soundtrack was also hugely successful. It earned $2 million and went platinum. Wow. Just Just a couple of weeks, everybody had the Shaft soundtrack. Hayes was also nominated for two Academy Awards. Uh, One was for Best Original Dramatic Score. The other one was Best Original Song for the theme of Shaft. Mm -hmm. And he won for Best Original Song. Theme from Shaft, music and lyrics by Isaac Hayes. And the winner is... Isaac Hayes, theme from Shaft. I thank you. I'd like to thank the Academy, and I'd like to thank the Stacks organization for encouraging me to score a motion picture. Most of all, I'd like to thank a lady who's here with me tonight, and that's my grandmother, and this is a thrill for me, and also a few days, her 80th birthday, and this is her present for me. Thank you. I've seen the, his performance. He played it on the Grammys. Yeah. And uh, it was something. It was the first time an African-American composer won an Academy Award. Yeah. Yeah, wow. it's awesome. Another fun fact, the 45 single of the record topped the U.S. charts at number one. Mm-hmm. And I would say that if Shaft the movie set the bar high for black exploitation films, the soundtrack clearly did as well. Yeah. I miss, you know, especially from the, it's from the 60s and the 70s, but, you know, the, the movie theme song, which sings about the movie. I right. miss that. We don't do that anymore. There's no. never like a movie that's like, Ant-Man is the guy he turns into an ant and he, you know what I mean? We just don't do that I would love anymore. the funky like, Isaac Hayes version of Ant-Man. Of Ant-Man, yeah. yeah that just, would be the we don't, shit. We don't do that anymore and I miss that. I, I also miss that. Movie soundtracks suck now. Although I will say, I, I'm so bad at comic book movies because I've never, I don't even I think I've ever even seen one of them. Um, yeah. Is the movie Guardians of the Galaxy where one of them's a squirrel? It's a, he's a raccoon. A raccoon. They Close had a enough. great soundtrack. It was all easy listening songs from the early 70s. It was like, yeah. if you like pina coladas. Yeah. I love that soundtrack. And that's a great soundtrack. Yeah. But I mean, again, they just pulled songs from the time of which I was talking about that I liked. They didn't really do anything. No, but nothing they original. curated a playlist. But I will talk about that in the next episode of where we'll get to that. Great. But back to Shaft. So Shaft would be followed by two sequels. The first one, Shaft's Big Score in 1972, just a year later. Also directed by Parks. Isaac Hayes didn't return for the music, though. Mm -hmm. Parks ended up doing the music himself, like composing himself. Had a bigger budget, but of course subject to diminishing returns. Still turned a profit, but less so. Right. And then the second was Shaft in Africa in 1973. I remember that, yeah. Yeah. Was Richard Roundtree in all three of them? He has always played Shaft. He was just like, I've only got one role in me, it's Shaft. Yeah, he always played Shaft. Quick question. Is the word Shaft 
did that become sexual after this or before this? Oh, like talking about somebody's shaft? I mean, when you say shaft, I just think of... Schlong. Yeah. I, I don't know. That's a good question. If any listeners know the answer let to that question, know. please Did, let us know. Uh, yeah. Shaft. I'm just talking about Shaft. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so again, Parks didn't direct Shaft in Africa, and it was diminishing returns. There actually was a Shaft TV show from the 1973 to 1974 season really? airing on CBS. Roundtree was in that as well, but of course they had to tone down the character to be on TV. Yeah, of course. So it didn't last very long, and it's probably for the better that it didn't. Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit more about Shaft later, but that's pretty much where Shaft ended, at least right now. So the next big film I want to talk about uh, that came out is another black exploitation classic, Superfly from 1972. Yeah, Superfly. Superfly. This dude is bad, and he ain't just fly. He's Superfly. Yeah, Superfly. When it comes to women, they come to him, but it's still not enough. He wants a big score, a million in cash. Yeah. The big one. This is a chance, and I want to take it. Now. Can a superfly Harlem dude leave the system? He's got a plan to stick it to the man. He's super hood, super high, super dude, super fly. Another independently produced film, this time it was directed by Gordon Parks Jr., the son of the director of Shaft. And this was another film that was aided by a best-selling soundtrack. Curtis Mayfield did the soundtrack for Superfly, which actually I have here. I was listening to it earlier. I love earlier. Curtis Mayfield. Yeah, it's great. Superfly talked about living the life, which is you know the term used to describe an urban existence, which revolves around sex, drugs, pimps, gambling, and guns. So that movie emphasized, I'm living the life. Mm-hmm. And it did this to the extreme by making a cocaine dealer uh, its protagonist and its center focus. So Ron O'Neill played the character of Young Blood Priest, a coke dealer who is trying to quit the drug business or, quote unquote, the life, as I said before. This movie was closer, I think, to Sweet Sweet back in that it was an anti-hero film right. more well, so than Shaft. Yeah, it was more, I mean, it sounds like Shaft was part of the establishment, but was just just like bad as shit. Right. And Youngblood Priest, who in more mainstream traditional movies would normally be seen as the bad guy, here in normal anti-hero mode, he's sympathetic and relatable to the audiences. And also it plays with that trope where, you know, he's the bad guy trying to get out of the game, you know, trying to be a good guy. Mm-hmm. So anyway, the production of this film uh, made significant advances for African-Americans. The Harlem community backed Superfly financially and a number of black businesses helped with the production costs. So it was like a community effort. And along with Gordon Park's dad, Gordon Park Sr., he helped finance this movie as well. Another quality that distinguishes Superfly from other black exploitation films is the technical crew. The film had the largest non-white technical crew in its time. Oh, wow. Yeah, so minorities got a, a chance to, to work in these movies. It made about $4 million in profits. Fun fact, Superfly took black exploitation to the top of the box office, knocking off The Godfather as the highest grossing film in America. Oh, wow. This is according to the October 4th, 1972 edition of Variety. Mm-hmm. So... Superfly beat The Godfather. Wow, cool. Superfly also had a 1973 sequel called Superfly TNT, where the drug-dealing protagonist goes to Rome. (laughs) They like taking these protagonists to other countries. Shaft in Africa, Superfly to Rome. I was thinking more about just when you were saying that, oh, the, you know, Superfly knocked The Godfather off, and I was like, starting years and years of racial tension between the blacks and Italians. And did, then when he you said he went to Rome, I was there you just go. like, Even more, wow. He's like, he's finishing the job. Yeah. You know, he like, started with the Godfather. Now he's going. Yeah, he's to, going for, he's for going Rome. For yeah. yeah. He's a bad motherfucker. Mm-hmm. Star Ron O'Neill directed this time. 
Also, the movie had diminishing returns. Oh, and fun fact, he co-wrote the movie with Alex Haley of Roots fame. Oh, really? What's the TNT? Did, am I missing something? I think it's just because it's explosive. Okay. You'd see, you'll see that with these movies. Like, they'll have some sort of explosive name. And they also use black a lot. Like, mm-hmm. Black Diamond. Right, sure, you sure. Know, black Caesar. Uh-huh. So, there's a lot of black. Black Devil Doll from Hell. Right. So, they talk about that a lot. So, you'll see this. So, before going forward, I want to stop and say that a bunch of movies came out after this. Like, just, there's hundreds of black exploitation I like movies. Yeah. I can't talk about all of them. But I mean, the floodgates were open. By the time Superfly was out, people were churning these movies out because they were always making a profit and they were explosive, like TNT. Uh huh. What what year? 70? 72. 72 for Superfly got it. A lot of them were urban, like settings, gangster movies or action movies, and they always kind of revolved around the same thing flawed characters as heroes, pimps, drug dealers, tough guys, fighting the man. They also, like every exploitation movie, they had plenty of nudity, violence, and of course, they would start this trend where they would casually call white people by derogatory names like Cracker and Honky. Yeah, yeah. So, which, you know, audiences love that, and I, I, I like hearing... Oh, it's delightful. You, know, you yeah. call him a, a honky um, motherfucker. Yeah, I mean, that was that was George Jefferson's thing, you yeah. know? I mean, it was... Yeah. That became part of the okay way of dealing with race, yeah. you know? And it's amazing. Yeah, and hilarious. Audience ate all this up, but black exploitation quickly grew from urban settings and moved into other genres. Everything from martial arts, westerns, horror, comedy, even musicals. There was a black exploitation film for every genre. Mm-hmm. And I want to emphasize a few of them because these are popular movies, but they also are a good representation of these genres. The first one I want to talk about is horror, and the first movie I want to talk about is Blackula. Oh, Blackula, right. Yeah. You shall pay, Black Prince. With my name, you shall be Blackula. Blackula, the Black Avenger, rising from his tomb to fill the night with horror. Blackula, Dracula's soul brother, from American International Pictures. Blackula came out in 1972. It was the first and arguably the best black horror film in a cycle of black horror films. Mm-hmm. It starred William Marshall, who was like the main Blackula character, and he was cool. And it was a fresh like spin on the age-old like vampire story. You know, in this movie, the vampire who was Blackula, he was condemned to wander Los Angeles. He had a cape, and of course, he like you know insatiable lust for blood. Blackula, of course, was a major box office hit. It was followed by a sequel called Scream, Blackula Scream. Yeah. I just love the exploitation movies of the 70s where you can tell that someone came up with a title Mm -hmm. and then probably a poster idea and then wrote a movie after that. Exactly. Because it's like, nobody was like, oh, I'd love to have a black Dracula. They like sat down to write the screenplay. And then once it was done and they were casting, they changed it. Right. Someone was like, how about Blackula? And they're like, oh yeah, that's much better. Like, you know that black, somebody was stoned and was like, like, you know, Blackula? Yeah. And it was like, oh, that's the movie we're making. And then they sold this movie probably before they'd even written it. Right. Based on the title. title. Yeah. Well, other titles would follow suit. They had one called Blackenstein. That's not even close. No. And then <laughs> Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde, which is also that's not, not even, even close. Not, but that's again, even the worse. black yeah. thing was in there. Right. Another movie I had to talk about was called Abby, and that was from 1974 because that's a black exploitation horror film about a woman who is possessed by an African sex spirit. Mm-hmm. This was Abby, a woman loved and in love until that night when something evil came looking for a soul to possess. Hear me, demon! Leave this woman body! Abby, rated R. 
The film stars Carol Speed as a title character. It was a low budget effort attempt to grab the box office share of Warner Brothers The Exorcist. Okay. So it was, it was an Exorcist oh, ripoff. Oh, I see. Uh huh. So Abby, after making $4 million in the film's first month of release, uh, they were eventually sued by Warner Brothers for copyright infringement because they consider Abby was a black variation of the exact same tale. And so it was soon pulled from distribution. Oh, wow. Abby has been rare since then, but actually I found it on YouTube, so I'll put it on the site. Oh, good. I want to see that. But here's my question with that. Like, why didn't they call it the Blacksorcist? It's like a missed opportunity. The Blackula Blacksorcist? Yeah. Yeah, I feel like that was a missed opportunity. The Blacksorcist. I think I would see the Blacksorcist. Moving on, kung fu movies were big in the 70s, especially because of Bruce Lee and his movies. Yep. So it would only make sense that there would be a black exploitation version of kung fu films going forward. The first one that I want to mention is Black Belt Jones from 1974. I've never heard of this. Enter Jim Dragon Kelly. He clubbers the mob as Black Belt Jones. Black Belt Jones leads his private commandos into the nerve center of a gangland stronghold to crack a super crime conspiracy. This is the movie that breaks through to a new dimension in film excitement as Kelly takes on the underworld. So Warner Brothers produced this movie. They produced Enter the Dragon, which was the big Bruce Lee movie. Mm-hmm. And that was a year before. And they were trying to come up with a black exploitation version of that to make more money. Mm-hmm. And they wrapped this movie around a martial arts expert Jim Kelly, who was in Enter the Dragon as one of the people that fought Bruce Lee. So he was already known for that movie. They made this vehicle about him. Okay. And this came out in 1974. And, you know, this is the first time I think they actually were able to really mix the two genres together. You know, kung fu movies, black exploitation it's the perfect mix that you right. know is mixed together well, plus they've already got they already they already had their own pun because it was black belt right so they were already like yeah black belt jones yeah. i mean perfect you already got black in the title and he, he was a bankable box office star but he's also more of the positive kind of stars because he wasn't like a pimp or a gangster he was just an, a, a kick-ass guy mm-hmm. so people emulated that and black kids emulated that wanted to be like jim kelly right sure. so it was a very positive movie and he started a bunch of these other movies i'll talk about more later so the next film i want to discuss is a black exploitation western mm-hmm. it's a western from 1975 i note this one because it stars fred williamson who would be a big black exploitation actor probably one of the biggest stars in black exploitation he was a former football player and he was in a a lot of these movies um, but i wanted to bring this up because yeah it was like probably one of the first black exploitation westerns williamson also co-wrote and produced this film and the name of this movie is well i'll let you hear the trailer they rode into a white man's town bringing black man's law he's black he's brutal part legend part devil all man he's boss fred williamson is boss nigger So, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't believe that the song says it, too. I <laughs> know. Well, the thing is, a lot of these westerns also have that in the title somehow. Yeah. So, that's like one step up. Uh-huh. They, you know, they were and, like, we've got to turn this up a little bit if turn we Turn up the notch wanna, a little bit. Yeah. And this movie was more of a, you know, and some of these other black exploitation westerns were sort of a parody of the Sergio Leone, Clint Eastwood westerns. Right, right. And some of the Sam Peckinpah types as well. Mm-hmm. So, they made money and they got people to see westerns in the theaters. But I'm just thinking, can you imagine being in 1974 or whenever, 
and going up to your grindhouse theater and somewhere in Times Square and asking for a ticket for this movie as a oh pasty white guy. I I'm, would be like, I would just point. I'd hold <laughs> out my money and say one for that and point. Right, yeah, yeah. that's probably what people did. Mm -hmm. All right, and the last movie I want to talk about, just different genres, is animation. Mm -hmm. Now, this one is called Coonskin, and this came out in 1975, and it was by Ralph Bakshi. He did Fritz the Cat and Lord of the Rings. Oh, Remember? sure, yeah. yeah. Ralph Bakshi. I don't know. How, I think that's how you say his name. Uh, Fritz the Cat, boy. Yeah, this movie Coonskin was hugely controversial, <laughs> you think? Fritz the Cat was really controversial. It was also controversial. Yeah. He has a lot of weird-ass movies in the 70s. So just if you don't know, so he was, a, what, was he a director or was he an animator? <sighs> I think a little bit of both. Both, yeah. So he made animated X-rated films. And Pretty it much. was a big deal back then because, of course, nobody had ever seen that before. Right. And everyone thought that animation, of course, we live in the times of South Park and Family Guy and but these were um, still kind of even because they were a lot of racial stereotypes oh, yeah. a lot of violence they were X-rated films sex, yeah. and back in a time when most X-rated films were very adult well let me explain this movie too because what he did was he teamed up with Barry White Philip Michael Thomas mm -hmm. from Miami Vice fame yep and Scatman Crothers and a group of black animators, and they were trying to make an unflinching, realistic, you know, controversial movie about the Harlem Ghetto. So we had a bunch of black animators working on this film. He's a mix of live action and animation techniques, and it's a very surreal take on actually the song of the South, Briar, Briar Rabbit Tales, Burr Rabbit Tales. So. Yeah which is controversial in itself. He made no attempt to hide the character's stereotypical like origins, and it was considered one of the most controversial movies ever made. Ooh, I'm going to check fact, this one out. Yeah. yeah. Fun fact, it was picketed by the Congress of Racial Equality, including 20-year-old protester Al Sharpton. Oh, wow. Protesting the hell out of this movie. Mm -hmm. And Paramount Studios soon withdrew the release after you know it got hit by all this criticism for this mm -hmm. film. Despite the uproar, Paramount withdrew it. This independent company grabbed it and released it in theaters. And I think it did pretty good in theaters and made its money back. And now it's considered a cult classic, but very controversial. Yeah. And one of the out. few black exploitation animated films. Mm -hmm. Also, some other things to note, too. So, again, I mentioned all these different films and different genres, and it was getting very popular. But black exploitation themes were making their way into other media that were non considered black exploitation first thing I want to talk about is Marvel Comics. Mm -hmm. I mentioned them before in Vigilante Vets and how when in 1974 they invented the Punisher character, right, right. that was a mirror image of the Vigilante Veteran character in a lot of movies at that time period. Marvel mm -hmm. was quick to grab that trope and run with it. They did the same with black exploitation. Their hero Luke Cage is actually a black exploitation superhero. Right, right. So Luke Cage first appeared and Luke Cage here for hire uh, number one in June of 1972. He was created by Archie Goodwin and he was the first black superhero to be featured as a protagonist and title character of a comic book, the first main black superhero. Mm -hmm. So the story goes, Cage is an ex-convict imprisoned for a crime he didn't commit. He gains his powers of superhuman strength and unbreakable skin after being subjected involuntarily to an experimental procedure. Once freed, Cage becomes a hero for hire. Basically, John Schaff has superpowers. Okay. Luke Cage is ranked as the 34th greatest comic book character of all time by Wizard Magazine, which is a big comic book magazine. Anyway, so you'll see more about Luke Cage as we go forward, but again, there was a hit. Black Exploitation Superhero. Yeah. We talked about John Shaft as being the black James Bond. Mm -hmm. Well, the real James Bond took some black exploitation themes. Okay. The movie I want to talk about is Live and Let Die from 1973. Mm -hmm. 
Living and Die is the eighth spy film in the James Bond series and the first to star Roger Moore. Although producers wanted to get Sean Connery back after Diamonds of Forever, he declined, so they had to find a new person. Right. They found Roger Moore. So here's the plot, and tell me what you think. Okay, so in the film, a Harlem drug lord known as Mr. Big plans to distribute two tons of heroin free to put rival drug barons out of business. Mr. Big is revealed to be the disguised alter ego of Dr. Kananga, a corrupt Caribbean dictator who rules San Monique, which is a fictional island where heroin is grown. Mm-hmm. It's the most black exploitation yeah, plot that sounds ever. Pretty like, black exploitation, like yeah, yeah. So Bond goes up against them or whatever. Have you seen this movie? No, I, you know I don't know if I've ever actually seen a full James Bond movie all the way through. Hearing that this was a black exploitation type of movie, I, I watched it just like a, a week ago. Mm-hmm. This is a weird ass movie. Yeah, yeah. Because you can tell they were just like we gotta somehow implement this and, because and modernize British, it, modernize probably. it, and it really like Bond goes into Harlem. Mm-hmm. First of all, he goes to Harlem, and like every black person in Harlem has walkie-talkies that they're talking about his movements, like they're all tracking him. Mm-hmm. Like I guess everybody works together in Harlem. Uh-huh. Yeah, and well, this was yeah. yeah, black people as a whole, are like, all, according to yeah. Live and Let Die. Mm-hmm. And it's really tonally all over the place. Yeah, it's very wedged in. Another point I wanted to make is you talked about exploitation. There's like a whole boat scene chase, like in this river. Mm-hmm. in New Orleans. So the scene is like from a whole other movie or some shit. It's got James Bond and he's in a boat and he's being chased by some of the bad guys that are working for the drug lord or whatever. But then there's this redneck sheriff that comes out of nowhere and it's this long sequence, by the way. It's just, it just like takes up like 20 minutes, it seems like. And this redneck sheriff's trying to catch him too, along with the other guys. And it's part of that trope we talked about in Hicksploitation where like he jumps something like over a berm with the boat and then the bad guys try to do it and they wreck. And meanwhile, the sheriff guy who's trying to chase everybody's like i gotta get that sucker we're gonna get his ass he's just like a total redneck stereotype he's like the precursor to jackie gleason and smoking the bandit it's just it's so fucking weird it comes out of nowhere but it's also like you know we got black exploitation this tries to take part of another piece of exploitation which is the exploitation piece and it's like we're gonna be like gator or some shit i don't oh, it really? comes out of nowhere this is the weirdest fucking movie yeah. and then they're like old man river yeah that old yeah sounds yeah, so kind of James, all over the place yeah. so yeah it's it's just a weird fucking film. James Bond's honky British ass in Harlem. <laughs> yeah. You know, and he's this walks right into Mr. Big's place and he's Right. But instead of it being kind of like a fish out of water movie, it's like you're you're rooting for James Bond, even though right. it's just weird. In black exploitation movies, you're supposed to be rooting for the black people. Well, yeah, it just it doesn't make any sense. Now, I will say a lot of the antagonists are constantly one upping Bond, so mm-hmm. he's not as smart as he thinks okay, he well, is in the movie. Good. But still like yeah. It's just so like bizarre. Interesting enough, there's some fun facts here. The producers were reportedly required to pay protection money to a local Harlem gang to ensure the crew's safety when they were actually filming in areas around Harlem. When the cash ran out, they were encouraged, quote-unquote, to leave. So some of those shots of Harlem were actually in uptown Man- Manhattan, okay. Upper East Side or whatever. Uh-huh. But Living Let Die made a shitload of money. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a budget of $7 million, and it grossed $171 million worldwide. Wow. So it was a huge, huge moneymaker. And, you know, it co-opted this black exploitation plots. Another thing about this movie is that it obviously doesn't have a funky soundtrack. The music and score was done by Paul McCartney. So the, mm-hmm. the theme song. The whitest human being on the planet. Yeah. But it's totally out of place. Like the opening credits have like black women dancing in fire. Mm-hmm. You know, this is like they needed an Isaac Hayes soundtrack. Is right. What it sure. But instead they've got Paul, <laughs> Paul right. McCartney. And oh, and Jane Seymour's in this movie, too. And she's hot. Uh-huh. But movie, also so. very white. But, he, but seriously, if you were to, to just make the, both these characters black, this would have been a black exploitation. Uh-huh. Sure. Movie. Yeah. Yeah. And 
hit all the story beats. So, you know, you have white James Bond trying that's to be so like funny. black James Bond. Wow, John that's Chap. really interesting. I never knew that. It's so funny that it's just like, oh, here's something that's making money at the time. Let's yeah. just throw a white person in and see, well, a series of white people and see, what see how it does. Yeah, and of course cool. it made money. <laughs> and so this is where I'm going to leave it for the first half okay. of our series. But I wanted to leave it at the peak. This happened around 1973. So that's when, you know, black exploitation in just a few short years had really reached sort of a peak where it was invading even, you know, like I said, mainstream cinema and it was getting a lot of recognition and making a lot of money. Yeah. At the time, it looked like it was never going to end. Unfortunately, it does. And we'll talk about that in the next episode. That's where I'm leaving it for this one. Awesome. Well, I wrote a bunch of notes, but I think I'm going to wait because okay. obviously I don't want to bring up anything that you're going to talk about next, especially if you're right at 1973. So, yeah. All right. So, awesome. I love this. I love your history. It all makes sense to me. And I don't know a lot about this topic. I know most of the titles and I know kind of, you know, in general what you're talking about, but this has been really educational and I can't wait for the next one. All right. Well, it'll be back next week. So thanks, everyone. Thanks, so everybody. next week, a little bit different. It'll be Tom again. And then I'll go two in a row after that. So, yep. so we're switching it up. See, See you, next, you week. next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to Slums of Film History. You can find us on the web at slumsoffilmhistory.com where you can find links to some of the movies we talked about today along with pictures, videos, and additional resources as well as Sunday Slum Day, our weekly recommendation for the best and sometimes worst films every Sunday night. If you want to keep up with us, we're on Facebook and Twitter where we share out a lot of additional content. And as always, please fact check us and let us know if we left anything out. We're not professionals, just two friends that love gross movies. (laughs) 